G'day everybody, welcome to today's episode of Let's Do Another Take. In today's episode, I'm chatting with a legend of Australian music and one of the greatest songwriters this country's ever produced, the amazing Tim Rogers. Tim is the lead singer and songwriter of one of the greatest bands ever, UMI. He is the lead singer of the Bamboos, of Twin Set, and more recently, the Hard Ons as well. Tim is famously a very thoughtful guy and He's a really lovely bloke. We had a really great chat. Unfortunately, I had a massive power outage right at the start of the conversation and lost the first probably half an hour of our chat. But what remains is still a great chat. So sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with the one and only Tim Rogers. When a couple of years ago, I talked about a bit, I tried to get out of touring. It was probably mm. three and a half years ago, and I was touring with with you and I, and, and um, just was really unhealthy in every way up there and here, and and tried to get out because I was thinking, you know, we a lot of people say as soon as making music stops becoming fun, I'm getting out. Yeah, but no one ever wants to because it's it's you always think well tomorrow night might be great, yeah. but I had this succession of nights or weeks where I just was not enjoying and i thought well i'm gonna get out and yeah. so told andy our manager very quietly and i told david <laughs> and russ and i said look i'm gonna go and get a job and and i'll do something if we really need to but but i can't do this anymore and so um just got a bartending job um in the basement at the SB and it was great wow challenging because people often just treated you like you know um gaffer on your boot heel yeah um, really just rude and, mm. you know, it's just part of the job. But it was helping with my um, OCD and, and hand-washing stuff because you can't, you know, you, you want to keep your place clean and your work environment clean, but you, you can't keep mm. yourself clean all the time when you're cleaning mm. toilets. Um, and then, yeah, when, when the, the virus became a real thing and I remember the exact moment when it, it did registered for me, oh, shit, this is real. Mm. And um, and I and was told I was laid off, and um, I thought, wow, what kind of an idiot in the period of pandemics is a musician and works in hospitality? <laughs> you know, there's two jobs in one day, just you know. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, similarly, um, I think back in a position now, pretty healthy, where it's uh, that just feel very fortunate. And, and I guess even, even during the past couple of years, I mean, at least for the anxiety and the, and the kind of terror about what could happen, I guess at least I thought we could dive into our imaginations for for hours or yeah, minutes or in, entire days, and, and certainly got a lot of um, of writing done. But that's a, were you were you happy with what you were coming up with? Well, it was good to edit things down when we were re rehearsing these new songs for the twin set record yesterday. I was looking at the lyrics and, and thinking, well, for the first time in 
a long, long while, probably 35 years, I was really happy with uh, this versus good. This, I, and I was glad that in wow. that period of not touring, I could just whittle things down because uh, I don't do that. And I didn't for probably 25 years, you know, just writing lyrics down and thinking, oh, well, no one cares anyway. And hmm. then I think the first time I was forced to examine it was when we were working in Los Angeles with George Draculius on UMI's fourth record. And George would have no qualms about going, what the fuck is this? And I love George and he's a magnificent man and a friend. And um, But he'd really grill me. And, and still, I remember going around to his house and, and he and his wife, you know, we were just sort of drinking some some cocktails and, and he was going through that song Heavy Heart going, you know, I don't know. And I, I had to cross things out. And and now still when I play that song, uh, I, there are still lines that I just think I I could do better than that. You know, I, it just doesn't wow. hit it for me. Um, hmm. Berlin Chair means kind of really nothing, um, but, I'm not going to change it now because people seem to like it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, just a bit. But the um, so now looking through this uh, and the last UMI record and this twin set record, I'm looking through and thinking I'm really glad I had that time and a tiny bit of discipline to edit them and musically mm. as well because each of these songs and each of the UMI songs went through, I reckon, four different permutations before I gave them to the band. And similarly with these songs, each one had a completely different feel, different chord changes, lyrics, da 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 da, -da and then whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. Mm. And um, I think that writing or attempting to write fiction has helped with that because although I haven't published any fiction, uh, that's an ongoing process. And my editor, oh, wow. my editors are just relentless i mean this i never knew that there was this much red ink in the world and i'll just <laughs> you know this is a, this is a tautology you're, you're repeating this is unnecessary yeah and you get that back and it hurts you know yeah um but they're, but right. they're right yeah yeah ernest ernest hemingway said write drunk and edit sober and i think that's that's a beautiful thing. And it, it doesn't have to mean literally be drunk, but it just means get out of your head when you're right. Really? Well, oh, I mean, not, not in my case, and I'm guessing yours. It's, um, <laughs> stupidly enough, uh, I did include that in the lyric on this twin set record. So um, I haven't stolen from you yet, Michael. But, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Ernest Hemingway fan um, at all. Um, but his his relationship between writing and his editing mm. the process is fascinating. Mm. And one one day it'll happen. You know, similarly with music, um, there are still artists that I don't. It hasn't clicked, and and I hope to get to. And mm. um, Grateful Dead being one, mm. I, I thought they were the enemy for decades. And mm. remember. Really early on in my gig going days, Brett uh, Carotta, who was the guitarist in Mass Appeal, who I worship, mm. used to wear a Grateful Dead t shirt. And I thought, wow, well, what's this hardcore punk band? And Brett's wearing Grateful Dead t shirt. Yeah. And then it was, I was um, drinking with a friend, my friend Len, who lives in a town just up the road. And, and he's a little older than me, but he played me this, um, uh, he, he's a deadhead. 
and runs this little curio store. And we just kind of get together on Sundays if I'm home and, and, and drink some wine and, and talk. And it just suddenly got me. And wow. I love that. Yeah. We were listening to Europe 72 and this song Jack Straw, uh, which is track number four uh, on the original release of Europe 72. And I just thought, what have I missed? And I called mm. Brian Nan Curvis, actually, who's the biggest deadhead I know, and said, what, what have I fucking missed? And and he said, welcome, my boy, welcome, and sent me hours and hours of, of um, Grateful Dead stuff. And um, similarly, I thought that they were just, oh, they're just, just jam band, bleh. But they, there's so yeah. much else going on. I mean, there are records where it is, it's dull. Um, but they use, uh, there are songs where they, they, some of their chord changes that like Hoagie Carmichael could have written them or Jerome right. Kern. Um, it's not just blues based. Uh, and I'm going to have to I check them out because I never got them. There's a lot there. Um, and people will say, oh, yeah, Workman's Dead, you know, it's their acoustic uh, record um, or um, American Beauty. You know, they're the ones that people say, oh, they're the best. But I, they're, they're, good, and they're good records. But uh, Blues for Allah, um, uh, Terrapin Station. But Europe 72, I think, is probably my favourite. Um, yeah, there's stuff there. Okay. And, and why I broke that up is because, you know, I'm looking forward to getting into to Hemingway at some stage. You know, I, I love Moon mm. Feast, but um, it's great that there's, there's so much out there and... Um, Things, you know, well, you, you'll get them. It's uh, mm. even in a mm. bunch of, uh, like, you and I, who are, you know, we're, we're pretty nerdish. And then saying <laughs> that, the hard-ons, why we're such a family and why, you know, everyone gets on so great mm. is because, well, we've known each other for 35 years. But the hard-ons, I mean, there's no more intense musical discussion than in a van with those guys. Yeah, right. And we, we drove to um, Bunbury, from Perth the other day, back and forth, and I giggled so hard I soiled myself. But <laughs> the musical discussion was great because we were talking about the fall, you know, and I'm fascinated by the fall, but I'm not as big a fan as a couple of friends. And in the process of the three-hour drive or whatever it is, everyone said, well, I know this fall record that you might enjoy. And, da -da -da. and so this, since we've gotten home, we're all just sending each other full records that we reckon mm. we should listen to. Um, so the next Hard Ons record, which we start in December down in Tasmania, is going to be batshit. <laughs> nice. <laughs> once you once you start going into the fall territory, it's like, whoa, okay, song structures and vocal delivery, it all goes out the window. And Yeah, wow. When you say that we're working on, are you working with, with the Hard Ons? Yeah, well, I sing with them now. And oh, great. Until they throw me out. But we did the last record together. I'm sorry, sir, that risk has been taken. Um, <laughs> what a great it's, title. It, yeah, it's awesome. And it's a great record. Uh, Blackie wrote all of the music, um, a couple of songs with Ray and Murray, and, and Blackie wrote all the lyrics apart from two songs. Um, and this next record, which we're going to do at Mona uh, on a desk. Oh, wow. But apparently the Beatles worked on. I don't know whether it's the Abbey Road studio or not, but mm. um, I was EMI down in the console, probably. 
Well, I'm hoping so. You know, we were down in Tasmania working on a ballet last year and in Tribuna in Tasmania. And we met up uh, with David Walsh and the Mona Crew. And, and David, who's quite a character, mentioned something about, yes, well, I'm buying the, the old, uh, it, you know, in my desk, Beatles, da 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 da, Abbey Road. As you do. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a pretty loose night. So I thought, <laughs> yeah. Right, good on sure. you, Rossi. Yeah. And then hard on Swear this to have to have this talk, and I said, "Look, there's this offer guy, Chris Townend. He's a wonderful engineer, old friend of the band, and he's going to work in Tasmania at Mona, working on this Beatles desk, and with a film crew. And they've said to the hard ons want to make an album down there, and and we're oh, all wow. Like, uh huh. At Mona, how amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've never been there, and it's one of my absolute must-see things in life. It, I well, it's, can't wait. The, look, the whole story of it, um, Walsh's story, um, the way that the community either embraces or has a bit of trepidation about what it does, but the whole model of how it's set up and what they put into that community is, is pretty fucking great. And mm. that's before that's before you walk into the gallery, and then it's just <laughs> do not take drugs before you go in there. It's not going to end well. Um, <laughs> Why? Um, you just don't need to. Okay. Okay. Nice. Nice. <laughs> no, you, you can you can fall into some holes, but it's really wonderful. And my friend Ben Salter uh, did a songwriting residency did down there. Um, I think Glennie Richards might be doing one as well. Yeah, it's something else that you know the the way they've done it is very admirable, and in a in a kind of a way that it's not stiff at all. It's it's loose as a goose, mm. um, and it, it feels vaguely criminal a lot of the time. Or you know, don't let the parents see what we're doing, which adds an extra frisson to it. Nice, but it seems all kind of above board. It mm. seems that way, um, but there's it's, there's something always a bit naughty about work, working there. Interesting. I played uh, played at a, a show there with um, it was Dan Kelly and and um, Benny Salter and Glenn Richards. You know, there's three of my favourite songwriters in history there, and mm. it just ended up being this all night party and. Uh, wonderful stuff you know i'd still like to think that recording situations or gig situations there's a chance everyone looks after each other but you know come on this is i'm making fucking rock and roll music here and folk music yeah let's, let's get into trouble yeah totally do you um do you love recording as much now? are you still excited about it like you were when you first started yeah 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 nice. um I mean, you're talking about learning how to operate a desk. So, what what do you yeah. think triggered that? Uh, well, I'm a pretty slow learner, and I I'm not sure. Maybe it's just my time to investigate it a little. Mm. It never interested me before, and now I'll just let that. In my interest, I think it's having conversations with Russ and Andy and, and Davey as mm. Davey's been building his studio in Melbourne, as Rusty's been 
making and recording in Sydney his own projects. Mm. And he sends them to me and says, oh, what do you think of this? And we'll discuss drum sounds and, and vocal sounds and mm. arrangements. And, and, yeah, it's just kind of happening. Um, the whole working on a laptop in your bedroom idea just it didn't interest me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I guess, um, been such a significant, probably the most significant change in, in the way that we record. Um, but I like studios and gear and yeah, yeah. Know, plugins don't interest me. I guess I'm just a bit of an aesthetic or a bit tactile. I like to yeah. touch things, yeah. not people, just things. <laughs> Glad you clarified. Mm. And but yes, getting into the studio when you and I made the last record remotely, and when was that? It was two years ago. Um, pandemic. Dave and I were lived within five k's of each other in Melbourne, so we could walk to each other's house and record, but no one could move. You know, Melbourne lockdown, blah blah blah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so we recorded here, Rusty recorded at home and then another studio in Sydney when he could, Andy did the same. And it was interesting, but I want to be in the same room as everybody and uh, yeah, just feel the energy. Uh, yeah, just, I guess that's, that's the proper term. Yeah. And throw things around and, and really spend a long time together and, and you know, try and do a session on cups of tea and then, then get a bit weird later on and see what happens and yeah. either yeah. wipe it or keep it. Yeah. And I guess I'm, I feel privileged and lucky just through being born when I was that I, and being in a brilliant band that I have experienced that full tilt months in a Hollywood recording studio or out in the valley. Yeah. Uh, New York studio you know working next door to public enemy and and then um in studio green street in new york and manhattan um mm. la and mixing next to snoop dogg or um mm. tom petty was recording up the road and uh, up the corridor in sound city mm. and, uh but then everything reducing to recording remotely and and um, yeah yeah and having experienced both of those, I know that I'll never be privy to spending a lot of time in a studio. For example, with this twin set album, yeah. um, we have because I'm paying for it, it we're going to go into Sing Sing Studios in Melbourne, mm-hmm. big studio. That's where we made some of the first twin set record in 1999. But great you know, studio, we can, we can afford two days, yeah, it's just the reality of it. And we're, we're just going to try and get everything done in two days is this is this a solo project or or umi well i made this record with a band called <coughs> twin set uh called what rhymes with cars and girls in 1999 and it was really good and so i've re oh I've twin written, sets the band that's right yeah and so i've um written sequels to all the songs on that album and got as many of the original band that is alive uh, to mm. 
to get together and make a sequel record we, because um, it's 24 years on and um, some people I know like that record and so I wanted to, as a writing experiment, write sequels to it all wow. and see, see what happened. And it's, it's kind of worked and the, the original band members uh, of the twin set like it as well and so um, that's what we're doing. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, we thought rather than let, let's blow the budget on an, on a, this studio that we love at Sing Sing and see if we can get it done in two days. So we're actually rehearsing the fuck out of it. And when me rehearsing the fuck out of something, because you and I, the most we've ever rehearsed has been before opening hour, you know, at the pub, a couple yeah, of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just not that kind of band, much to the frustration, I think, of, of um, most of the band. <laughs> but for the yeah, for this project, we're going to rehearse the fuck out of it so we can go in. We're working with producer Jimmy Marudis. Mm-hmm. Who's meticulous, in a, in and that's I mean that as a compliment, mm. and it works well because I'm not meticulous, and so I have to work on my patience um, mm. about arrangements, about sounds. Um, yes, yeah, so that's what we're doing. So and I listened to um, the uh, an actor repairs album, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely stunning. And it sounds like you've been pretty meticulous in the arrangements. There's some amazing string string parts, and the song "Youth" absolutely killed me. I just mm. adored that song. Yeah, it's um, good song. It, so it, was someone else taking over the reins of the kind of a, the string arrangement side of things, or was that something you were you did that? No, 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 no. Ah. With um, with the string arrangements. Uh, I've got a couple of friends, Melanie Robinson, Jen Anderson, Zanny Kolach, who are string players who can arrange. And right. so the way I do it is uh, give uh, melodic references um, or other just melodic references, harmonic references, which they then inevitably will do something uh, better Uh, but you know we collaborate on the initial idea and then we talk about the sound Um, so I can never take credit for the string arrangements but um, it's nice collaborating on those because Mm. my working relationship with those three women is that they know that I've got a basic very basic grasp of uh, scribing and, and, and music notation right yeah and they're okay with that yeah and similarly shane amara whose studio uh yikesville that we use for that record knows similarly that my musicology is limited but that's okay with him Mm. because his musicology is vast and he's an house of a studio so it works Um, i love how angular the strings are on that record well, you, if, you, if you're going to use them, you might as well use them. I mean, just using them as beds. Uh, Jackie Orzowski, who I – dear Jackie, who we mm. worked with on Hourly Daily in particular, mm. would say, you know, I get asked all the time to, to just give beds. And he said, it's a 
to waste. Just put a synth it up, you yeah, know. And I found yeah. it insulting to to composers and to string players, and so hmm. to let their freak flag fly. And and also similarly with the horn players, uh, Remco, who played saxophone on that album, he did takes which could be deemed quite straight. Hmm. And then we'd say, let's Ornette Coleman the fuck out of this. Come on. And and he'd do that. And it would always be the Ornette takes that we'd, we'd run with or the Russ and Roland Kirk takes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so if you're going to employ these different instruments, um, you might as well see how far you can take it. Yeah. Um, yesterday, yeah. an arrangement that I asked Jen to look into and I thought I wanted knew, I thought thought I knew the way that this song should go, and she suggested no, let's elongate it because I've got this idea, and she played it to me just on her violin, and then uh, second take showed me the the second violin part, and then we said no, let's let's orchestrate this. This is great because there's yeah, nice. something more than just solo violin going in. It was um, uh, again. I thought I had the idea for how the song went, but Jen had a better idea. And so mm. let's take that idea and then forever say it was mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. There's something so special and magical about uh, when you've been working on a song and finally you get to record a beautiful string ensemble. It, it, it never stops being magical, that sound. It's it's seductive. Yeah. Um, so, are you are you more are you more seduced by the studio or the stage? Oh. Well, uh, I just know that in either it's the only part of the day or the month that I feel comfortable. That's not laying in bed with the missus. You know that that feel really oddly enough safe on stage if my anxiety levels are okay mm. um, or the studio. Never never feel uh, anxious in the studio unless it's a bad day. Yeah. And similarly with the stage, you know, when you're on there and when things go bad or if you're having a bad anxiety day, that's, that's a different nightmare. But I think sim similarly, uh, but... Again, Michael, because I don't know how to use a studio apart from being an enthusiast and how to mm -hmm. get a feeling, maybe um, uh, get a band feeling comfortable and, and, and let them know that their opinions are valued most of the time. And <laughs> so I, I know my place, you know. And similarly, I know my place in the band on stage, I've got a thing. I kind of wear, you know, fancy clothes. I'm the I'm the worst singer in UMI. I'm the worst musician in UMI. I'm the worst musician in the twin set. I'm the worst singer in the twin set. Um, uh, bamboos. I'm the. I just know my place. That I'm there to be the enthusiast and wear the silly pants. And oh. that's that's my job at this at this point. It may change soon. And so, I feel really comfortable with that. And because, um, yeah, I, I know my place and I want to do a good job. That's fascinating because, uh, to me, 
great singers are the best communicators. And I, uh, I was such a massive fan of, of all your albums, but Ali Daly, I would put in my top five Australian albums of all time. And, and one of my favorite albums of all time. And for you to say that you're the worst singer in the band is interesting because it's, are you, are you talking purely vocal tone? Because I mean, you communicate the the fuck out of it when you sing. Well, thanks. It, I guess that's what I have to rely on. Yeah. That it, something is given over. Yeah. Um, because and look, the the, the the I can't sing thing is only because I get told it every fucking night. You know, uh, by punters. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It happens. Ah, for fuck's sake. Uh, it's 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 water off the back at the moment. Um, yeah, kind of, but it's, it still gets me because I, I I love singers, whether it's Teddy Thompson or um, Linda Thompson or Richard Thompson, all the Thompsons, um, <laughs> Ella Thompson, um, and there's kind of limits to what I can I can do just through physiognomy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and physiologically, but. Um, so be it. I just have to rely yeah. on that I'm communicating something. But you know, yeah. so it's not a it's not a, a, a put down. It's just that I've heard everyone in my band sing, and but this is the way we've ended up. And I tend to write yeah. most of the songs for the band, and the other guys don't really want to sing them. They think that the communication works better if I sing it, and so that's yeah. where we are. And yeah, and it's great. Um, you know, but it, you just get told something so often. I mean, I got told when I was 13. My dad and mum are beautiful singers. My dad was a beautiful singer and gorgeous. Mm. And um, even as a kid and doing musicals and theatre and things, and, and I'd always just get mm, back of the chorus, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's what happens. And so, again, I know my place and just try and do the best job I can uh, with what I got. So, uh, what what do, if you could go back and talk to that kind of kid that got told to go at the back of the chorus? And do you think if he saw you now and saw what you'd achieved, do you think? I mean, how do you think that kid would have processed it? Gee, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm, would he have believed it? Um, I could have believed anything as a kid. I, I was, I was pretty mentally uh, loose. Um, hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about. I guess I do think about that kid a lot when I sing with the hard ons because I worship those guys and I worship hmm. those guys. And yeah. so now being on stage with them, I do have times where I go, wow. Because I was the kid at the front of the stage, mouthing everything, hoping yeah. that Blackie or Ray or Kesh would see me and go, "Hey, that kid knows their whole words. Get up here and sing." Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah, wow. Uh, here you are. And I, I did it to a young lady at a show in Fremantle the other day, and unfortunately, um, she didn't know any of the songs. She was just there with her parents, right. and so I said, "Hey, come sing with the band." And then she got up and, and she said, "I don't know." I'm just here because oh, no. I'm interested. In, I'm interested in rock and roll. Uh, okay, uh, here's <laughs> play the tambourine. Uh, yeah, just no, no. It was like kind of, and uh, 
I guess, you know, seeing kids at gigs, you always want to just say, hey, you know, you can do this thing. Just just yeah. um, be cool and hang out with your friends and listen to listen to as many records as you can and and, yeah. um, and stay off your phone and, and uh, you know, read books. Yeah. But uh, it, it didn't work on Sunday night in, in Fremont. <laughs> I mean, how many people, honestly, as a kid, stand in the front row of their favourite band and then end up singing with that band? It, it, it's a pretty amazing story. It's pretty Objectively. cool. Well, the um, people asked Davey Lane about it. You know, you, hey, you loved you or mine. And then we grabbed him and said, do you want to play? And he went, okay. <laughs> and then I gave him my guitar and he played better than I did. And I thought, well, either I'm going to kill this guy or ask him <laughs> to join the band, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, that seems to have done well for him. I think he's happy. And, and so, um, and within the hard-ons, we talk about that, that, um, you know, why not get a fan to, to join here. It doesn't always end badly. It, it can. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. the, Charlie, the Charlie Manson uh, Beach Boys example <laughs> didn't end well, but no, uh, it, it, it can end all right. I mean, but there's lots of those occasions where getting to speak to people, you know, touring from Rocket from the Crypt and going out for drinks with those guys and I'm sitting around going, I love this band and we're here. And, <laughs> you know, talking to Keith Richards, there, Pete Townsend, or um, mm. you know, meeting Nick Lowe and, and sitting around and talking to him about cricket and talking to Mick Jagger mm. about cricket, actually. That cricket's Unreal. Um, you know, sitting and having dinner with Bonnie Wright. You know, fuck me. Yeah. You think, generally, I think if you, if you try and be half decent and um, not bad company, these, these things can happen. Mm. Um, I've got to ask you a question. Would you, if you could click your fingers, would you be hitting a hitting the winning six in a World Cup final or playing on stage with the band at Wembley to 100,000 people? <laughs> hitting a six. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah, the... Um... Yeah. I was talking to... Uh, a guy called Wayne Pierce, who's a rugby league legend. Oh, um, I know Wayne Pierce. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. So I've had one guitar student in my life, and that was Wayne Pierce. And I, uh, so I said to him, do, do you want to do a podcast where we talk about music instead of footy for a change? And, uh, and he said, yeah, I'd love that. So I said, you know, would you score the winning try in a World Cup or be on stage at Wembley? And he said, uh, he said two really interesting things. One was uh, I've kind of experienced the, those incredible highs on the, on the sporting field, so I would choose the Wembley thing. Mm. But the thing that really fascinated me is he said, I don't dream about hitting the winning six or scoring the winning try or the winning goal. I, it's not about being that person. It's just about being part of the team that does that. And it, it was a totally genuine thing. Whereas me, you know, I, I felt like, fuck, how, you know, egotistical am I that I want to be the one that hits the six or scores the goal. And for him, it was all about just being part of the team. He didn't care at all whether he was the one that, that had that kind of moment. That's, that's 
lovely. And uh, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to want to be the the front foot drive over the boundary. It's possibly because Wayne has, yeah, as you said, achieved those levels um, individually and as a, as a member of a, of a team. Mm. Um, but, yeah, fuck, how good would it be? I mean, I, I never played elite-level sport. I've, I've been a, a pretty reasonable sportsman without being really good at anything. How good would it be to have that feeling of, you know, kicking the winning goal after the after the siren to win the grand final? Well, yeah, uh, I'm definitely not elite at, uh, at sports in any way, but I play a lot of charity footy and mm. um, VFL, BFL, and, and um, kicked a, a last-minute goal in a charity game. Fuck yeah. To win the game. And... Um, that night, all I could think of was, "What if I missed? What if I missed?" But then, mm. you didn't. But, yeah, well. And I spent that night sitting by myself, uh, just drinking beer and kind of shaking my head. And I also had a concussion, so there was that. But and, <laughs> um, a, a friend, uh, well, it was Paul Kelly, sent me a message: "Cometh the hour, cometh the man." And no. I like, on your PK. Um, and all I can the, my only memory, possibly because I was concussed, is how quiet it was as I was running in for the goal. And there were, I heard there were 10,000 people there at this game. Wow. My daughter was still living in Australia and she was in the front row. I knew she was there. And it was a charity game. It was fun. But I, I do have a bit of white line fever. And, and as I was lining up, I... Cannot and there were, I've seen footage of it, and there were people just yelling at me, you know, you fucking twat. <laughs> and how far out were you? Uh, do you want the truth or the legend? <laughs> you could give me both. <laughs> it was probably 25, but, you know, so that's still easy to miss, it, very easy to miss, and uh, oddly easier to miss than, than maybe from 40, but mm. um, but hey, I didn't. Yeah, exactly. I remember years ago when I was first really wanting to get into production and mm-hmm. I was talking to Wayne Connolly. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, st- I, I said, look, would you mind if I just picked your brains about how to, you know, get into production? And he said, no, not at all. And I said, you know, I've been freelance producing for a number of years and I feel like I do good stuff, but I just don't know how to get to the next level. You know, yeah. what what advice do you have? And he said, look, to be honest, in my case, it was luck. He said, I was working in a studio in, I think he said Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said one day uh, there were a bunch of us on, on staff. And, uh, and he said, one day we got a booking to do a, a recording for a band and I was the one that got the booking and he said that band was UMI and he said ever since then I still get work because I've worked with with UMI and it could have easily been the un, the other engineer on staff that got that gig well we, we still get work because we work with Wayne Connolly really <laughs> he had um, he had so much to 
do with the way we sounded. Uh, remember, I think probably the first session that we did with him was maybe doing a, a single, uh, and I know that a song called How Much Is Enough was on one, on the B-side maybe, and mm-hmm. Wayne, who I loved as a singer, songwriter, musician, I used to go and see his band The Welcome Mat a lot. Oh, and, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. he was in that band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he, at the end of recording the first take, said, I was doing something vocally at the end that wasn't what it ended up being. And he said, why don't you try doing something more Tim Rogers? Hmm. And that's the first time I'd heard that. I hear it wow. a lot. And it normally means, you know, do a lot of that kind of business. And, um, <laughs> swing your arm around. But he said, do something more Tim Rogers. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd. I was yeah. pretty young and so I, I did and that was kind of yelp and be emotive rather than be smart and mm. and that's uh, what I've continued to do, you know, fuck being smart when you can be emotive. But that Absolutely. was Wayne who did that and, and I thought if he's suggesting it, he knows, you know, he's got the right idea. When you were, first of all, when fame first came upon you was it was it an amazing thing or was it a punch in the face and terrifying <laughs> uh, when fame came upon me hmm. <laughs> sorry uh, that's a weird way of asking it let's rephrase that uh, <laughs> it was always at a very odd level because when the band became quite big we were always overseas playing to no one Right. And being told by folks overseas what we needed to change in order to replicate the success at home overseas. Um, right. we'd, we'd come home, do a tour for a couple of weeks, play in front of a lot of people, and then go back to playing to two people in San Diego mm. every time. And that was just the way the band operated. And hmm. I remember one night in Brisbane, and it was the first time we got over a thousand people at a show. Um, it was at the arena in Brisbane and and we were excited because our manager Kate Stewart came back every couple of minutes and said, Wow, there's four hundred people in the building or shit. And she came and mm. said six hundred people there. And then at a point she said there's thirteen hundred people there and went, Wow and we played oh, okay wow. and then afterwards the venue owner or the venue manager uh, came to me and, and he had um, under each arm uh, two women, um, one woman, and in that very kind of sickeningly stereotypical, hey. And the gentleman said, well, these ladies would like to to show you a good time in Brisbane. Hmm. And I thought, oh, this is happening. Yeah. Uh, I said, well, I just thought, I, I don't really know how to talk to people in this situation and mm-hmm. kind of got a show. I'd rather just snort cocaine and drink with my friends. Um, but at the time I thought, oh, this, is, this maybe wouldn't have happened if we hadn't sold out the gig or whatever. And mm. I just, yeah, at that time, I remember then thinking, I just kind of want to go in a hotel room and, and drink with old friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, 
fun thing and or getting it was just getting recognised at pubs really, and yeah, people would say, "Oh, you're Tim Friedman." No, 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 you're <laughs> you're, you're that guy in Powderfinger. No, no, you're 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 that guy. And maybe it's just being Australian that it never got silly or yeah. And but it was that that experience that any if there was ever a potential for it to become ridiculous, we were always overseas playing to no one. And mm. then, um, but I'd always see it in friends, you know, uh, or acquaintances, because we'd be on tour with really big bands. Or When we brought The Strokes out in that first tour in mm. 2001, and they were great, but that was watching that up close. I mean, we saw it um, with our friends in Jet, and our friends in the vines, or um, mm. you know, friends who became powder finger became massive. And any time we'd be with them socially, people would lose their minds. They're like, oh, hmm. But the, the Strokes one was another level because they were um, the hottest thing on the planet. And I could see it from an interesting perspective because my daughter had just been born, and that was the utter focus of everything and so I was looking with my wife uh, after Ruby and yet here are our new friends who were really funny and really good and great company but could handle fame mm. better than anyone had ever seen because they were quite worldly. Right. And But I saw so many relationships break up on that tour, you know, because it was r real people hiding in hotels trying to get at them yeah it had nothing to do with us we were playing last but we weren't the successful band on the tour we were just the, the last band on the on right tour. so watching that and then we went back to america with them the following year and they just weren't happy at all mm. Mm. they were still great and they were writing room on fire their second record and it was great to see them but fuck, it was grim, you know, and it was because fame had come into it. Yeah, right. Fabrizio was dating someone very famous at the time, and he's such amazingly great company. But he that well, was an extra pressure on him, and and he was in love, but yeah, odd. And so it was. We just kept kept getting these reminders that. Fame, being successful at something is is great, but that fame element, yeah, is just weird. Yeah, and the way you, I guess, the way you handle it, uh, we didn't have to really handle anything because it wasn't people hiding to get to yeah. see. It. We, we were like yeah. the band that lucked out, uh, so there was nothing nothing to handle. Um, mm. just, just try and be decent to people and and get jealous when your friend becomes more successful than you, you know. <laughs> Cause, cause <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's going to happen. I mean, if you, in UMI, if you support UMI one year, next year, you're going to be huge. So mm. I was playing with some kids from a school, uh, Umundi School of Rock in Umundi, uh, this gig that Katie Noonan had organised for me to go up and play with these kids, and they were gorgeous. Um, and what Katie does at that school and what the school does is great, but... The kids were so cool, and they had to learn a bunch of UMI songs. And um, but afterwards, so we just got together. And beforehand, I thought, "Wow, these kids are acting a bit too cool with me." But 
afterwards, like, I could recognise, oh, they were just nervous, you know, playing in front of their mm. parents and their friends. And, and mm. um, afterwards, I just said to them, um, hold on, because once you play with this guy next year, you know, you're going to be good. But don't forget this guy. Don't forget old yeah, 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 yeah. Give him a show in two years, all right? <laughs> and have they have they been kicking goals since? I, it was only uh, a week and a half ago, so... Um, oh, cool. Give him a little we'll bit check of time, in. Michael. Yeah. Come on. Give, give him another give him time. <laughs> uh, um, mate, look, I'm, I'm really conscious of the fact that you kind of have a day to get to, and I really, really fucking appreciate you... Um, joining me for the chat yeah. and I would I would love it if we could do a part two because I literally haven't asked most of the things I wanted to ask you no we can do that that'd be that'd be fun it's just um uh, one of these days yeah I'm home um the missus is choreographing a ballet in town and so it's I think I have five hours to to do my washing because I'm back away nice. uh day after tomorrow but I'm in the studio tomorrow and um yeah and you know, I'd love to to go out the in the backyard and and work on our oh wow work on our Shiraz grapes, but um, or you know clean up the mess here. Um, that looks magic there. Or, or just go and go and walk with some kangaroos, um, but yeah. So let's do a part two, Michael. It's really lovely to meet you, mate. You too, my friend. Thank you so much. Yeah.